You are now listening to the April 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Beginning last week, we have been sharing the story of Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz, the most wicked and notorious king in the history of Judah. We said that Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and reigned over Judah for 29 years. The Bible assesses Hezekiah as a king who did right in the sight of the Lord as he trusted in the Lord. The Bible tells us that he clung to the Lord and did not depart from him and kept his commandments. We saw how Hezekiah cleaned up the house of the Lord as the first order of business after he became king. Unlike other kings before him, who worshipped idols and did evil in the sight of the Lord, Hezekiah demonstrated that his priority was with God. He repaired the house of God and restored the worship above all else. Hezekiah also restored the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover to remember God's deliverance. The Bible tells us that most of the people turned back to God with humble hearts under Hezekiah's leadership. God's hand moved the heart of the people of Judah and they carried out God's command with one heart. Hezekiah gathered people to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That happened on the second month. At the time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover were celebrated on the first month. Hezekiah thought it was better to celebrate them a month late than not celebrate at all. So he called people to Jerusalem. When the people gathered in Jerusalem, they threw away all the sacrificing altars and incense-burning altars Ahaz had built for idols into the Kidron River. Then the Levites led the worship for one true God. By slaughtering the Passover lambs for the people, they interceded on behalf of those that had not consecrated themselves to be consecrated in the sight of the Lord. However, despite such an effort for consecration, there was a group of people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, who mocked his effort and did not follow the law of the Lord. Amazingly, Hezekiah did not give up on them and prayed for them instead. Hezekiah believed that the only one who could forgive sins was God. So he prayed to God to forgive them, although they did not consecrate themselves in accordance to the purification rules of the sanctuary. When Hezekiah prayed faithfully, God heard his prayers and healed the people. People came to the realization what sinful lives they had been living and how much they needed the forgiveness of God. So they repented before God and spent their time in thanksgiving while celebrating the Passover. 
They learned how much they needed such an occasion and how enjoyable it was to be reconciled with the Lord. Then the people decided to extend the celebration for another seven days and repeated the feast again. It was as if they finally came to their senses and realized how starved they were of celebrating in the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 26 tells us that there was a great joy in Jerusalem and there was no joy like it since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. After the Passover celebration, the people of Israel returned to their hometowns. Now when all this was finished, all Israel, who were present, went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the asherim, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession. This is the passage from verse 1 in Second Chronicles chapter 31. The land of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh were major territories of Judah and Israel. All the people of Israel restored the worship from the Passover celebration and removed all idols in high places when they returned home. This is how their idol worshiping ceased and the worshiping of God was restored. Second Chronicles chapter 31 records the detailed accounts of how Hezekiah carried out a reform after the Passover. He restored the duties of the priests and the Levites and reinstituted ways to support them according to the law of God. Because kings before Hezekiah were busy worshiping idols, the priests were marginalized and could not carry out their duties properly as God commanded them. So Hezekiah did everything he could so the priests and the Levites could be reinstated and would be able to devote themselves to worshiping God according to his law. Hezekiah continued the reform so all Judah would return back to God. 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verses 20-21 to 21 record his actions as follows. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good, right and true, before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Hezekiah and the people of Judah experienced prosperity after repenting before God and seeking God and by living according to the word of God. One day, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged all the fortified cities. It was in the fourteenth year of Hezekiah since he became king. At the time, Assyria was a formidable country. Hezekiah's father Ahaz has given in to Assyria and paid tribute. But once Hezekiah became king, he rejected Assyria's dominance and did not pay tribute. Instead, he prepared against Assyria's attack and put Jerusalem in order, and he made an alliance with Egypt. But uncharacteristically, when Assyria came and attacked, Hezekiah caved into them. 
That was in contrast to his usual response of trusting God's protection and following God's word. Let's read verses 14 to 16 in 2 Kings chapter 18. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah subjugated himself to Assyria and gave tribute to them. He gave the gold from the door of the house of the Lord and the gold from the pillars of the house of the Lord. Even though he saw the prosperity that God had granted him, Hezekiah gave in to the Assyrians' attack. What do you think happened afterward? What kind of decisions did Hezekiah make subsequently? Would he return to his old self or stay subjugated to Assyria? We will answer these questions when we continue with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is What About Healing? Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James has been talking about prayer. Last week, we uh, came to a passage of Scripture where James is talking about healing, and I took some time to make sure we understood what the passage wasn't saying. Do you all remember that? This is not what the passage is saying. So we kind of laid the foundation there. So we're going to move on. We're going to talk about what the Bible has about to say about healing and prayer. But before we go on, I just want to remind us that the book of James is really uh, puts an emphasis on prayer. Like seven times prayer is mentioned in important ways. James himself had a nickname, and his nickname was Camel Knees. How did he get a nickname like Camel Knees? Well, it was because that man, he was on prayer, he was on his knees so much that literally he had these crazy calluses on his knees. James, camel knees. Well, we're going to look at a portion of scripture now that has been a great source of comfort but controversy for thousands of years. Let's look at James chapter 5 and verse 14. Is anyone among you suffering? And that just means having a tough time. Let him pray. Is anybody cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This has been a passage that is controversial, of course, you can imagine why. Well, I want us to look at this, and I want us to ask two questions. First of all, I want us to ask the question, how do we approach this passage? And then I want to look at the second question, what does this passage teach? So how do we approach it? Well, there's several approaches. One is Some people teach that James is talking about a ministry of healing that was only exercised by the apostles and stopped when the last apostle died. There's a flaw, though, in the teaching, and that's because it doesn't match with James' invitation. James says the sick person should call the who? Elders, not the apostles. Even if the apostles died, James says that you are to call the elders. And so by using this title, he associates this ministry to the sick, not with the apostles alone, but uh, and not just the times of the apostles, but with the church, the continuing ministry of the local church until Jesus returns. So it's not a ministry that's in the past, so the hope is very present, and it's right now. Amen? Some teach that James is talking about a sacrament for those who are dying. I'm just going to say that's nowhere implied in the text at all. So that's all I'm going to say about that. And then there are also those who teach that 
God now uses medical science, doctors, surgeons, medications, rather than the ministry of the elders of the church. Now, I want to say that it's true that in the New Testament, there are examples of the helpful use of medical science that was as up-to-date as it was in those times. Um, there's the example of the Good Samaritan, for instance. He took what, what was considered to be a great medicine. He took oil and wine to help the victim's wounds heal. Remember him? And then there was Paul who wrote to his young sidekick, Timothy, who was sick a lot. And Paul said, he didn't say, go to the elders and ask them to pray for you. Until Instead, he said, basically, you need to take some medication to make you feel better. There's another fellow by the name of Trophimus that Paul left sick in Miletus. And Paul didn't say, Trophy, Trophimus, you better call the elders to pray for you so that you'll get well. He was just sick. And then, of course, Luke, he's called the beloved physician. He's a doctor. He followed, and he was with many of the apostles. I mean, they had a doctor with them. So obviously, the New Testament doesn't exclude the use of medicine or or medical science uh, for the help um, that is necessary for healing. It doesn't discount that at all. But... I would say here, because the anointing that it's talking about is in the name of the Lord, it probably isn't talking about medical help. It's talking about the prayer of the elders that is a spiritual help in and of itself. But let me say, and I want you all to hear this, that I am not saying medication isn't good and that we should not take medication. I'm not saying that. Everybody hear that? Not saying that. But I'm not saying prayer doesn't do anything. And I'm saying that there might be times when prayer and the elders praying is enough. And you know that that's enough. So it's kind of both can go hand in hand. Or, you know, we feel especially led that, you know, this is, this is what what I need, just the elders to pray for me. But that's your own personal decision. And if you're sick, it doesn't mean you have to call for the elders for help either. So what what does this passage teach? We've looked at how to approach it. What does it teach? Well, I believe, like I've said, that there is a continuing ministry to the sick within the local church and that is vested in the elders of the church. Elders, translated from the Greek, <laughs> literally means the old person, you know, old guys. Old guys, elders, you know, the old guys. But later, the term elders came to be more of a title of respect. It was a title for the people who worked like council members for a city or the leaders of the synagogue. And in the Jewish mind, the, uh, an elder was o- the only person above an elder was a priest. And we read a lot about elders leading the local church in the New Testament. So our text says that there's a continuing ministry to the sick within the church. And this ministry is 
vested or held by the elders in the church. And this is the only passage in the New Testament which gives direct advice concerning sickness. It's the only one. I also want to say that this isn't talking about some person with a gift of healing, like one person who goes around with a gift of healing. It's talking about the elders who pray and this ministry is held by them. It's vested in by God. Now, I, I see a few things. Just pull them out for us. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray and let him call for the elders of the church. It's the responsibility of the sick person to call for the elders of the church. The elders do not seek that person. It's the sick person's responsibility. And the elders' prayers can only be given with the person's permission. Of course, like I said, not everybody's going to call for an elder when you get a cold or, you know, something like that. Sometimes people with very serious diseases don't ever call for the elders to pray for them. But the person who's sick must call the elders. Now, here's what the elders are expected to, to do. They're expected, this is kind of a yada, they're expected to pray, right? Let them pray. Let them pray over him. So I don't know how, how we do it. Is the, the sick person will be here. Maybe they're in a bed. We'll gather around. We'll, you know, if it's safe, if it's comfortable for that person, uh, we'll lay hands on them. But first we anoint them. I usually do on their forehead, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And we pray and we ask God to raise them up. You know what? I got to tell you, there are some times when the faith is just there so strongly, you know, I mean, you almost, ex you almost expect them to stand up right then. You know what I'm saying? I've seen God do things like that. I've often seen God do something after the prayer later. Amazing things. Sometimes we call them miracles. And then I've, I've seen God not do anything and the person has died, frankly. Because within this whole scenario, overarching all of this is the will of God, okay? It's the will of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. The elders are also expected to anoint the sick. Verse 14 says, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James is writing to the 12 tribes, he says in the first couple of verses in chapter 1. To the 12 tribes that are scattered around the world. He's talking to Jews, Jewish believers. These are the first believers in Jesus. Jews heard the gospel first, then Samaritans, and it went all out to the Gentiles. So it, they, they knew about anointing where we don't, we kind of have to be educated and catch up. Jesus, you'll remember, sent out the 12 disciples and it says in Mark 6, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So in Jesus' ministry, it was common. His disciples anointed people with oil and they were healed. So when the elders come to pray, James told them to anoint the sick person with oil. Oil in the Bible was often used as a symbol of health and vitality. 
kings were anointed with oil, representing that God was with them. God was there with them. The anointing oil is symbolic of the healing presence of Jesus. The anointing oil is symbolic of the healing presence of Jesus. Using it stirs up faith, the faith of the sick person as well as the faith of the elders. By anointing somebody with oil, we're reminding ourselves that any healing, all healing, comes from God. It builds the faith of the sick person as well as the faith of the elders. It's as if we're saying God is here and he is able to help you. In John chapter 9, we've referred to John 9 a few times. In John chapter 9, verse 1 and then verses 6 and 7, it says that Jesus was walking in the temple courts and he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Remember his disciples, remember they said, who sinned, this man is, or his parents, that he should be born blind, right? And Jesus says, his sickness isn't a result of his sin. And then it says that Jesus the man is blind over here. Jesus took, um, he put saliva and he mixed dust with the saliva and he made a mud and he put it on the blind man's eyes. When Jesus put this muddy mixture on the eyes of the blind man, he could see. Now, I have no clue what the saliva and, and the dirt mix into a muddy paste meant. I Bible commentators go all over the place trying to explain this. It's all conjuncture. Who knows? But I want to ask you a question. Was there anything supernatural about the dust or the saliva? You're right. No. What the Lord was doing was help stir up the blind man's faith. Now, Something similar happened in the Old Testament with a general by the name of Naaman. Naaman had leprosy, and we're told that the prophet of God told Naaman to to go to the Jordan River and immerse himself seven times, and uh, when he would do it the seventh time, he would be healed. And so Naaman grumbled, the Jordan River is so dirty, it's so muddy, well, okay. So he went in and dipped himself one time, immersed himself two, three, four, five, six. And the seventh time he comes up and he's healed. You see, there is this point of obedience, this place of faith. Come on, let's do this. And there's faith. Now, there is nothing magical about the oil. Why would you want that, right? There's nothing magical about the oil. The anointing oil is symbolic of the presence of God and it's intended to stir up faith in the person being prayed for and the faith of the elders of the church. Now, look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he had committed sins, they will be forgiven. You might be thinking, what does that mean? If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Well, it could mean a couple of things. First of all, it could mean that the sick person becomes 
aware that his sickness is due to sin. Now, we've been really careful to say that not all sickness is a result of sin. Amen? You've heard that, right? So that's, I hope that has sunk in. But it says, if he has committed sin, even the grammar of the Greek has the idea, but, but it's not always because of sin. Even the grammar has that. But if he has committed sin, sometimes sickness is a result of personal sin, and a person should examine themselves to see if this is the case. It happened to David. King David sinned big time. And he didn't confess his sin, and he got sick. And his sickness was a result of his sin. In Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, listen to what he said. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. He's sick. And I groaned all day long. I don't know the last time you were so sick, you were groaning. Day and night, your God's hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And this guy is so sick, he may have been dying. But verse 5 says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Amen. You know, there's hope. If you've sinned, then your sickness is a result of your sin. And you'll know it. Hey, God, if you confess your sin, will forgive you and all your guilt will be gone. Another uh, example of this is in Matthew chapter 9, when a, a man who couldn't walk, a lame man, a paralytic, he was brought to Jesus by his friends. And Jesus looked at them and he says, he looked at their faith, it says. So it wasn't, it wasn't the paralyzed man's faith. Jesus saw the faith of his friends. And Jesus said to the paralyzed man, he said, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now that started a whole controversy with the Jewish leader. Who are you that you think you can forgive sins? This whole long discussion. But the point is, Jesus said, you're sick because of your sins, and I forgive you your sins. And then the, blind man, or the paralyzed man got up and he walked. His sickness was due to sin. Now, there can be serious consequences for certain sins. Look at 1 Corinthians, which will be to the left from where we are in James. Let's look at 1 Corinthians. And uh, we'll look at chapter 11, verses 29. Uh, let's start with 27, okay? Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, this is the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats the cup without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen to this. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, God disciplines his kids. Do you hear what this said? Some of you are sick because of your sin. Some of you weak because of your sin. And some people died because of their sin. I say, whoa, that's pretty serious. How about you guys? So we understand that people can be sick. They can be weak. They can be ill because, or they can die even because of their sin. Yet I'm said, not most sickness is not a result of sin. Everybody hear that again, right? But if you're sick, you're laying there in bed, you better think about, hey, is there anything, Lord, I need to repent of what I know I've been doing. Now, it also could mean his sins will be forgiven. It could mean that lying there in bed, you realize that there is something that you'd forgotten about. You know, I need to be right with somebody. I, and, and God just brings something to mind. Then just confess that thing to the Lord. Maybe the Lord's just giving you a time out right then. And he's saying, hey, I, I need you to slow down. I need you to think. And the Lord brings something to mind. And you call for the elders. The elders should be men of, they have a vital faith in God. They need to be men who are living the word, godly men. And thankfully, our elders here at Calvary are those kind of guys. It could also mean that laying sick, the sick person recognizes that he can't be completely whole unless he's completely reconciled to God. So he sends for the elders of the church for prayer and anointing uh, in the name of the Lord, because he really needs to, he needs to get right with God. He just hasn't been in fellowship. He's not lost. He's saved, but just hasn't been in fellowship with God. And so the Lord is doing this so that the man will come back in the fellow or the woman in fellowship with him. Now, as you read on in verse 14, there's a whole lot to unpack here. Another expectation of the elders is that they pray in the name of the Lord. Now, you might think that's a yeah, duh, they pray. But it's what? In the what? Name of the Lord. What does it mean? First of all, it means that you believe that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Well, the word Lord in Greek is kurios. Say that. Kurios. And... The word that correlates to that in the Hebrew Old Testament is Yahweh, the sacred name of God. So if you're going to take an Old Testament passage and it talks about, uh, and Yahweh did that, it will say, and the Lord Jesus. See, Lord Kurios is the Old Testament word for Yahweh. So you're believing, when you pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're believing that Jesus 
is God. He is uh, the third member of the Trinity. Amen? He is part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is uh, the third member of the Trinity. It means that if Jesus is your Lord, you're going to submit to him. So you're praying in, the name, praying in the name of the Lord. You submit to the Lord. Whatever you want to do, I'll submit. It means that you recognize his character. When you pray in Jesus' name, you're praying according to his character. See, in the Bible, names represented qualities of people's lives. Kind of a, what, what the person will be determined by. So when you pray in Jesus' name, you're saying, my prayer is in character with what Jesus would pray. My prayer is in character. So if you pray some stupid outlandish prayer, don't say in Jesus' name, because Jesus would never do that, and he would never answer that, and God will say, what? My son would never ask for that. You ever have somebody say, well, well, so-and-so said this, or they tell you that, that your friend said that, and you go, no way. That's not the way they are, right? Well, when we pray, we pray, and Father in heaven says, yeah, that's what my son would say in Jesus' name. So it means praying according to Jesus' character. It also means recognizing that there is no other name. Look, there is no other name that we can be saved by or healed by, but the name of the Lord Jesus his powerful name. Amen? Amen? And then you're also praying according to God's will. When you're saying, uh, you're praying in the name of the Lord Jesus, of course, Jesus bowed to God's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if this cup had cast from me, please take this cup away. But nevertheless, not what I want to do, but what you want to do, your will be done. And we're to pray your be- will be done as it is in heaven as it is in and so be it on earth. Paul, the apostle, accepted this thorn in the flesh. Nobody's exactly sure what it was. I think it was kidney stones. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh, we don't know what it was. But it was so bad that he asked God, please take this away from me. God, please. I could serve you so much better if I didn't have this. God, this knocks me down. Lord, please, three times. And the apostle Paul had faith, amen? And finally, the Lord literally said to him, Paul, stop asking. My my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to give you my strength. I'll give you my power to live with this. And then Paul's response wasn't to grumble or complain. He says, all right. Therefore, I'm just going to boast in Jesus. I'm going to glorify him in the way that I live with this thorn in the flesh. And, you know, maybe that's what God is asking you to do, too. You call for the elders. They pray for you. They anoint you in the name of the Lord. And ultimately, you're not healed because the Lord says, you know what? My grace is enough for you. You will live with this. I'll give you the strength 
God will never give you more than you can bear, okay? I'll give you the strength to live through this. I want to say something. I think I said it last week, but I want to say it one more time. And that is, we are trying to build this world and make it heaven. We want heaven on earth. We don't want any more sickness. We don't want any crying, no more tears, no separation, no more death. That's wired in us. But it's never going to happen on this earth. This earth is not heaven. You hear me? Until you're in heaven, there is going to be all these things that pull you down. We've had a lot of breakthroughs, you know, when it comes to how to live, health, food, you know, all, but you know what? This isn't going to be heaven. In fact, we get so busy forgetting about heaven because things are so good down here. And so when some things start happening, we start grumbling. Why? Because our little heaven is being destroyed? Instead of looking up, see, God says, hey, 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 look up. This is not your home. That's your home. You're living in the ghetto here, okay? This is not where you belong. I have a home. Now, I just want to tell you, if, if you can trust that Jesus died for you, they took all your sins on him, that he was buried for you, that you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he paid for your sins. That was God's plan for you. You believe that plan, and that's an eternal plan. And you believe that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. He's praying for you right now. And you believe that Jesus is preparing a place for you in heaven. And you believe that Jesus Christ said, and I will come back and I will take you to be with me. If you really believe that, then you can trust his plan for you right now. He loves you so much. But this world, this earth is a blip, a blip in time, in eternity. This was all fade away. This was all past from mine. This is 70, 100 years. I've, I've known people who, 103. It's nothing in light of eternity. Eternity's coming. Heaven's coming. Heaven will be heaven. This, this earth, <laughs> sometimes really bad things happen to us. I just want you to think that's, that's about as close as hell that you're going to get. Hell kind of splashes on us now and then. You get, ah. That's the closest to hell you'll ever be. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Now, I read something that Brian Bill wrote, and I thought, I want to share it with you guys. So listen. He says, most of us think of healing as getting rid of this disease. It's like running the clock of life backwards and restoring the person to their previous state. 
But healing is a very broad concept that involves coming into a right relationship with God first and foremost. Then it touches every part of life, body, soul, and spirit. It involves the healing of all broken relationships and brings us to a place where we can receive God's blessings in a new and powerful way. When someone has said, someone has said that healing in the Bible is not becoming what we were, but becoming all that God intends us to be. When we pray for healing, we should not focus on the physical to the exclusion of the spiritual, emotional, and relational sides of life. We're not healed until we are made whole on every level of our existence. There's more to healing than just getting rid of what ails us. It's becoming what God wants us to be. We're thankful, Lord, that we can come to you right now. We can come to you in this present time and we can ask for healing. We can ask elders to pray for us. We can come to you and seek your will. You've said in this very same book that we don't have because we don't ask. So it may be that we haven't even asked yet. And you're waiting for that in your divine plan, whatever. But we want to submit to you. We want to obey you. And Lord, our hope is in heaven. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Praise God for his word. Another 
You can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. everyone, this is Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart, where we reflect upon our prayers by looking through prayers in the Bible. Last time, we learned the importance of knowing the God to whom we are praying. We must know who He is, how His character is, and the works He has done. When we know and understand these things, our faith towards Him matures, and we must then pray in that faith. For worldly people, the one they are praying to differs according to what they are asking for. There is one God that someone would pray in order to conceive a baby. There is another God one prays to for rain. Also, the name of the gods differs in each country. Is there anyone who at first believed in God because you heard that He is the most powerful among all gods? You believe that God is Lord of all things, so you thought, ah, If I ask Him, then I'll be able to receive everything, and you began to believe in Him. My friend Kay told me that her motive for going to church for the first time was to gain success from God. My friend who began going to church with that intention read a prayer that deeply touched her. It was a prayer from someone in the Bible. 
More than the prayer, it was God's answer to the prayer that deeply moved her. Whose prayer was it? How did God respond? Here is 1 Kings 3, verse 13. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. This was God's response to Solomon's prayer. My friend began going to church with an impure intention of wanting success in the world. After hearing Solomon's prayer, she wanted to gain wealth, but it seemed too bold to just ask outright. So she imitated Solomon and said, Please give me wisdom. Have you ever imitated Solomon's prayer to receive all the blessings he received? There are some who say that God gave Solomon wealth and honor because Solomon gave a thousand burnt offerings. Therefore, we must also give a thousand burnt offerings to receive wealth and honor as gifts. When God says, ask for whatever you want me to give you, and we ask for wisdom like Solomon did, will God be moved by our prayer and give us wisdom and more than even what we did not ask for? Or if we give God a thousand animals as burnt offerings, will he be moved and bless us? If we think this way, then we really don't know God. Why was God so moved when Solomon asked for wisdom? Why was God so pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom? Let's look at Solomon's prayer together to find the reason. Here is 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5-10. through 10. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am like a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Let's look again at how Solomon responded to God when he said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. First, Solomon praised God for his grace upon his father David. Then he clearly confessed that he was only able to follow his father David as king by God's grace. In such grace, Solomon humbly lowered himself before God and revered the Lord by calling himself servant and little child. Then he confessed that he was inadequate as a little child and didn't have the ability to govern God's chosen people. This meant Solomon didn't have the capability to lead the people well. From Solomon's prayer, we can see that Solomon did not want to dominate over the people as a king. Solomon clearly knew that on behalf of God, he had to lead the people the right way. Therefore, Solomon didn't lightly consider the Israelites who were God's chosen people and wanted to serve them well. He was saying, please give me the wisdom to lead these people to the good and right path. These are your precious people, so please let me handle the task well. 
the Bible says that God was pleased at such a prayer. It was a prayer after God's own heart. Now I understand why God was pleased with the prayer asking for wisdom. Solomon didn't ask for wisdom because he didn't have greed for possessions. God didn't bless Solomon because he thought Solomon was not being greedy. God was moved by the prayer because Solomon valued God's chosen people and asked for wisdom so he could lead them to the right path on behalf of God. Therefore, God responded in this way. This is 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 11-15. through 15. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. That's right. Jesus said, But first seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And this is what Solomon asked for. Therefore, God gave Solomon everything. What is a prayer after God's own heart? That's right. It is a prayer that seeks his kingdom and his righteousness. If we give such a prayer, then we will give a prayer after God's own heart. I'll see you next week from Prayers After God's Own Heart.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.